Hello to you all. This is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that are new, I just briefly want to share how I will be sharing this message. I will be sharing this message by seeking to speak as the oracles of God, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. In other words, we are to seek to allow God by his spirit to speak through us, to bring forth his purposes in one another. And in the ministry of the word of God, what I do to facilitate this, one of the things I do, is I cast lots to find a particular chapter each day and I meditate on it. So there's an equal chance each day of any particular chapter coming forth. Of course, God and his sovereign power when we're walking in purity and holiness is able to direct our paths as also he is able to direct us in the word of God even through the casting of lots. Now, that might not be for you, but I know that I have that kind of faith in the sovereignty of God because I know he is all-powerful and all-knowing. He is omniscient, meaning his presence is everywhere. He is attached in total knowledge to every particle of existence that has come from him. And so I just want to share what God is saying by his spirit, not only to me as an individual, but to you as an individual, but also to the corporate body of Christ for this particular time. I don't have anything prepared except for the brief notes I've made out of that half hour of meditation through the various times in this past week. It is my desire that I would release to you the words that are spirit and life that are coming out of the Spirit of God. And the spirit of prophecy, which is speaking out of the Spirit of God, the words of God, can only come forth as we are in a conscious state of union and fellowship with God, that is of worship. That is why it says in Revelations 19, commanding the apostle John, when he fell prostrate before the angel, the angel responds by saying, See thou, do it not. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What really testifies of the reality of who God is in Christ is being in that place of worshiping him in spirit and truth and being in that consciousness even as we are ministering the word of God. And so I pray that God's word would prevail through anything of myself that would tend to hold that back in any way. And I ask that your hearts be open to hearing what the Holy Spirit would be saying to you as an individual because we are living in times where there are momentous events on the horizon in the very near future. Now, I'm not going to get into all of that right now. If the Spirit of God leads me to talk about that, that's fine. But right now what I want to do is just basically share some of the chapters I received this week. I don't know, many times the Holy Spirit somehow weaves them into a theme that I don't even realize is there when I have read these notes before sharing this message. Right now, I just want to begin sharing the various passages. I do believe probably the theme passage I will choose is Luke chapter 13. So. On August the 27th, Saturday, I received 2 Peter chapter 2. And I just made some brief notes on this chapter, and I'm just going to share this in uh, 
brief, just going over what I received this week before I get into the message. And I said this about verses 1 to 2. Prophets are also known as teachers. And there are false prophets who also will sneak in to bring false teaching. They will cause many to follow their deceptive ways and thereby cause those that call themselves Christians to be misrepresented and cause many to attribute Christians to what is evil. They, through covetousness and deceptive words, will make merchandise of believers, and their judgment is not idle, but will come as sure as it did on the world before the flood. So even the people in the world before the flood were deceived into idolatry. Those that are godly will have God's power to deliver themselves out of temptation. Those that despise authority and pursue the lust of the flesh and uncleanness and do not fear to speak injuriously of dignities will be reserved for the most severe judgment. These are actually among Christians in their feasts and have a heart that is always seeking to commit adultery and to practice covetousness. They always seek material award for doing spiritual ministry. And we need to be aware of that. And be cautious of those that are always wanting to receive payments for their ministry. That is what I received. I know there's one thing that stood out to me when I was sharing here on 2 Peter chapter 2 to you. And that is that their judgment is not idle, but will come as sure as it did on the old world before the flood. A lot of you don't realize that Cain developed a wrong heart perception of God because of being offended at the consequences of God's holiness and the curse. I believe this is the case. So his, he still believed in God. He knew that God was real. But there was an alienation in his heart. He began to perceive God as an enigma because in his heart he was offended at the consequences of God's holiness because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And the result was he saw that God was holy, but he only perceived the holiness of God in a wrong heart attitude. You see, the holiness of God requires judgment on all that is corrupt, that has the destructive principle of destructiveness in it or death. If God did not judge all that was corrupt, there would be no wholeness. There would be no life. There would be no beauty. The source of ultimate beauty and ultimate life and ultimate wholeness is in the holiness of God which is the integrity of God's love that will not tolerate the slightest that is contrary to love, but is a blazing fire of judgment against it. How easy it is to lose sight of that because the consequences may seem so severe, so severe. It happened to King David. He shrinked back. We know the record, the historical record in Second, I believe it is first, I forgot if it's first or second Chronicles. But many of us are familiar with the account of the ark being taken by the priests and put on a cart, which they were supposed to carry. And then it becomes unstable, and they one of the priests, Uzziah, as I believe, reaches forth and God smites him dead immediately. Now they were dancing and praising and worshiping God while they were taking the ark when this happened to the priest. And it says that David was afraid of God and put the 
ark in the house of Obadidim. But later on, when he saw how the house of Obadidim was blessed, he realized his perception and his fear was a wrong fear. And he began to recognize that God must require such severity or he would not be holy. And if he was not holy, he could not be the one that could contain unlimited life and power without it corrupting him or being dissipated by corruption. He recognized that God was the very source of wholeness because there was no corruption in him. And therefore, our wholeness is in him. That he was the very source of beauty and therefore our true beauty that is everlasting is in God. And that is why King David said in the Psalms, one thing have I desired of the Lord and that will I seek after, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord. Well, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. So, going back to this verse, in between verses 3 to 9 in Second Peter, it says that the world before the flood also had this deception. And there's an archaeologist by the name of David Rowe that is a renowned archaeologist. And he points out the evidence of the first city after the flood, which is Arudu, which they found all many writings and clay tablets and many things on all of these cities. And he points out the evidence in a book he's written that the city of Arudu is evidently known as the city of Cain before the flood. In other words, after the flood, they found the remains of that city that was the city that Cain set up idolatrous worship in before the flood. And this is what he shares and believes is the case and points out the evidence that gives some pretty good indication that that is so. And so here we have in this passage something that has been going on from the very beginning of time, and that is the deception of our heart to begin to have an idolatrous perception of God like Cain. And I shared also with someone yesterday night about this, and I went on to share how there's many clay tablet writings that have been discovered and writings from Josephus and so on that show that Nimrod, uh, after that city, first city was colonized by the father, then there's Nimrod. Nimrod was around 15 feet tall, very large, enormous person. They were very large at that time. And there's all the evidence that that is the case, but he was exceptionally large, 15 feet tall. And he said, I will take vengeance on God because he caused the flood. So he was the one that started the next civilization, which was the Sumerian civilization, which was a very sophisticated civilization. And he was known to be very gifted at songs and poems, and, to, and yet he was very evil and anti-God and very powerful physically and in many other ways. You'll find this in all the writings and evidence of archaeology. I've read this from David Roll, a renowned archaeologist and other sources. Nimrod is in rebellion against God and sets up a rebellious society. And he, then they set up worship to this totally different God, which is represented in the moon, known as, you could call it the moon god. It is set up in the Ur of Chaldees, which Nimrod built, where Abraham lived many, many, I believe hundreds of years after Nimrod, and an enormous city with walls that are 70 feet tall, 80 feet, pardon me, 80 feet tall, 70 feet wide, and going for miles, and just reflected in the sun because they had such a beautiful metallic coating on them, very advanced a powerful civilization. You can look at YouTube videos that show what the city of or of Chaldees looked like because they found all the remains and the evidence and the writings of the tablets. And so you have this civilization 
And you have this moon god, for lack of a better word, because the symbol of the moon was the main, one of the big things on this religion. And basically, you have this religion then later on in time spreading to the Babylonian Empire, and from the Babylonian Empire spreading to Arabia, where you have the rock, that big black rock, where they had before the time of Muhammad many gods. I forget the number of the gods right now it was. It might have been 70 gods, I forgot. But uh, the main god back then was known as, was just a, addressed by the name the god, which means Allah, but it was referring to the moon god. And even in the time of Muhammad, they were worshiping mainly the moon god. Yes, Mohammed did renounce the moon god. But basically, you have them still this day, to this day and age in Islam marching around that same rock. And they have the symbol of the moon as Muslims. And so you see the deception of idolatry throughout history. And we go on now here. As we are continuing on, I just want to go to the next passage I received. I don't know if it's going to be part of the theme, but often the Holy Spirit does bring out a theme. That was on Tuesday I received Luke chapter 5. I'm not sharing what I received every day this week because some days this week I just had other things that interfered and so on. But usually I do get many days in the week in. But here we go to Luke chapter 5. Now basically Luke chapter 5 is about the account of Peter and others, James and John, fishing and toiling all night and catching nothing. And then the Lord says to them, well, now I want you to cast the net on the other side. And they're just, they've already cleaned up and they've got all their work done and they don't want to go out fishing. They're tired and they're weary. They said, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. But they said, nevertheless, at your word, we're going to go forth and we're going to obey you and do this. And they catch so much fish that their ship begins to sink and not only the first ship, but the second ship. And that's the account we have in verses 1 to 11 of Luke chapter 5. You know, we also may find ourselves in situations where we're working long hours till late at night for a long time to receive provision for our basic material needs and receive nothing. I've been doing that. I, I'm in this circumstance right now. And I've done this for years, working on the internet, trying to make money out of a pure heart because I want to be free to serve God. And I'm asking myself why have I gone through all this? Why have things not worked out? They are now. I'm on the verge of making money on the internet. I believe that I will soon. But why has it been so long? Why have I had to try so many things that didn't work over the years? I've always put the kingdom of God first. I've always spent my time in prayer and sacrificed the time I wanted to make money. And I know that if I did not spend my time in prayer and I gave up on it and I spent all my time trying to make the money on the internet, I would have probably been easily a millionaire by now. The reason I'm in the circumstance I am right now is because I've made significant time in prayer and in labor and the word first in my life. And the price has been that I am in a position of financial jeopardy. Am I worried? No. I know God is in control. I know my heart has been pure. But here we have the disciples toiling all night and catching nothing. Does God have to depend on my ability to make money on the internet to bring provision? God can bring it any way he wants for his purposes. I'm not concerned about that. I will continue to be working on the internet in my spare time and, and I enjoy it and it's very creative. Sometimes it can be very frustrating. But here's the thing. We should still not give up in our trust 
that God can provide our needs, even when we find ourselves going through years of toil and barrenness. Rather, we should be expectant for the time that God will speak and be ready to obey even when it is difficult so that we may receive those things we need to serve the Lord because our heart has been purified. Also, in the process of learning patience through such trying times. Remember Hannah. She was barren and she was desolate for years. Her heart was pure. She wanted something of a, she wanted a child for God, but her heart was purified to the point through her barrenness of not having a child for years. Where when she had a child, she offered that child Samuel totally to God. And you know how powerfully Samuel was used of God. And so, brothers and sisters, when we find ourselves going through years of barrenness, remember what the Word of God says. It says, Rejoice, thou barren, that bearest not. For the one that has no children will have more than the one that has experienced provision, or that is the married one. For in our trials, we have been brought into a marriage union with Elohim, the Almighty's One, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. that has caused us to be dead to the things of this world that are temporal and that we would tend to look at is our source of identity or that would eclipse our identity in God and as our source of a provision or would eclipse our perception of provision and our heart faith of abiding in the provision of the Almighty One. Yahweh Rapha, the Lord that heals, Yahweh Jireh, the Lord that provides deliverance. And he will provide deliverance even as he did to the disciples. And remember, brothers and sisters, we are in a time right now that is at the very end of what is most probably the 50th Jubilee of Israel. From the time she crossed the Jordan, we're in the month of September, which is the coming into the end of this Jubilee. And we know what Jubilee represents. It represents the year, the time of liberation, the time of provision for those that have been in debt, the time for God to bring forth his purpose and his glory. And I believe it is the time for him to bring forth the bride of Christ. And so we are to not give up and give in to the concerns of our provision, but to continue to learn to rest and obey when he speaks because God has his time to visit us like he did with Nehemiah when he was before the king and he was in that place of union with God where he didn't fear the king, but had the boldness and courage to ask the king, listen, king, I want to see Jerusalem restored. At the jeopardy of his life, he did this, and the king commanded provision and all he needed to bring forth the purpose of God. And there are those like myself who have a vision and others that is pure. And all I want to see is the glory of God in the land of the living. I want to see his bride come forth. I'm tired of seeing the walls broken down in the body of Christ. The walls of division, of denominationalism, the things that limit the fullness of, of the glory of God in the local assemblies around the world. The time has come that he's calling his people to come forth out of being denominational. I am writing a book that is getting close to being done, which has a detailed outline in it, which is a template for bringing forth local assemblies that will function in such a way that they will not limit the fullness of the headship of Christ from inhabiting the local assembly in all the assemblies they have and the administrations 
but they do under sensitivity to Jesus Christ they had. And I believe it is the cry and the vision and the zeal of the Lord to bring forth in this hour not merely another revival, but far more than another revival. As it says in Acts 4.12, concerning Jesus Christ, whom the heavens must receive until the restitution of all things. It is time for the bride of Christ to come forth and be pure and spotless in local assemblies around the world. Because the word of God says in the last days in Isaiah that he will cause praise to spring forth as the buds from a garden throughout all the nations of the world before his coming. And he also says this, As truly as I live, says the Lord, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There is a time coming before his coming when John 17 will be fulfilled in major cities and communities around the world, there will be communities which are the body of Christ coming into such a place of purity that the fullness of the headship of Christ can come down and fully inhabit the local assembly. Only this will turn our nation back to God. Only this will conquer our community and bring multitudes in our community into the kingdom of God. It's God's purpose in this hour, in every city and community, for his people to repent of limiting the fullness of the headship of Christ, to repent of not making his house a house of prayer. Why is it that we're so used to our routines and we don't start our meetings with the leadership leading the whole assembly to get prostrate on their faces with their heart before God in utter awe, in utter, to the point that we know brokenness before God in great humility and great reverence. The thing that is so lacking in this hour in the body of Christ is the fear of God. And I have an in-depth book I've been writing for years on the fear of God is far more than the fear of God. You could call it. It's much on the character of God and everything that comes out of that on rightly choosing to perceive who God really is. And God is calling us as the body of Christ to repent of failing to fear God because it is in the fear of God that this, there is the secret of intimate abiding in God. It is the antithesis of what I was talking about in regards to Cain worship and the wrong perception of God. Some of us have a wrong idolatrous perception of God, like Cain, that is very legalistic and is lacking in the grace of God. Others of us have a perception of God that is idolatrous. and perceives God as having no integrity in, in his love and no holiness and no requirement of judgment, who, like a Santa Claus, embraces almost anything. And it's all grace, grace, and it's a false gospel of grace that has not the fear of God in it. And I haven't, I'm not going to get into detail on this right now, but God is calling us as his people to come forth and to be his bride. And in this passage in Luke chapter 5, we see another event where there's a person that's paralyzed. And they can't get him because there's so many people crowding around Jesus. They don't know how to get him to Jesus. But did they give up because it seemed impossible that they could really enter into the presence of God's healing? The disciples certainly didn't give up and say, Lord, no, we're too tired. We can't go out and obey your word. They stepped out even though it looked impossible. And they believed in the God of the impossible. And here again we see great faith where they open up the roof and they let this man down. And the Lord says, 
because of your faith you are healed and he commands he says your sins are forgiven he says and now i say unto you rise up and walk and this man rises up and walk that is paralyzed and many of us feel paralyzed in our lives and we feel helpless even as to how to get into such a presence of god where his healing virtue can be released in our lives to bring whatever that provision is physically with infirmities or many other things and it's probably more than one thing it can be physical infirmity and poverty so that so many may find themselves in and they wonder some why did god allow this well hannah wondered why god allowed it in her life but she still continued to pray and to trust god and i know many of you are, are still continuing to pray and to trust god and i'm telling you that you are on the verge of breakthrough if you continue to trust the lord did christ give up and break his union with the father no he's god and his union could never be broken with the father he had an unchangeable pure faith in the father even though he experienced being forsaken of the Father, he was still one with the Father. His soul and his spirit were not defiled with rebellion where he had a fist of rebellion against God saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? His why was a cry that was just a release of burden. And there's nothing wrong with saying in our trials, why, why, God, are you allowing these things? It's beyond my understanding. We are to in all our ways acknowledge him. We are not to lean onto our own understanding, but to trust him. This is what Job wrestled with. And what is God's response with Job? Job can't comprehend why God's allowing this, but he's still trusting in God. He's not violating his integrity. And God points out to him basically this, look at what I've created. And he's saying, if I could create this and this and I can do this, don't you realize I am creative enough to take what I'm allowing you to go through that I, don't you realize I love you, I care for you, even though I'm allowing this, that you can still trust me, that the more you go through something like this, the greater the blessing is going to be because I am your potter. And it may be painful in the way I'm shaping you, but what's coming out of it is going to be powerful. It's going to be glorious. Your latter end is going to be far greater. So don't darken my counsel and my wisdom and my creativity by your own understanding. And so Job experienced God speaking to him, and he said, now my eye sees you. I heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now through this trial, I've come to know you so that I can trust you. Unconditional trust. As the word of God says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I think Jeremiah said that and, and, and was it Job that said that? I don't know exactly, but there's two places in the word of God where you can find that. And he's calling us as his people that feel paralyzed to not give up, but to be like Nehemiah that was bold enough to ask the king to not give up, but to have a faith of boldness that can go all the way through so that the things that hold us back, we tear away in our courage and in our desperation to not give up. We tear away till we can enter into that place of the glory of God and of his presence. There's one lady, and I forget her name, uh, uh, that was miraculously healed, and she was so terribly warped with terrible pain and suffering, and her back was all twisted up. And this is a true account. And the Lord spoke to her that on a certain day he would visit her, and he would heal her. And she called all her friends together saying, this is the day God is going to visit me. And the pastor didn't believe it would happen, so he went fishing. Sad case. Because the people that were there saw this woman that was twisted and couldn't stand, you know, she, she was just terribly twisted and contorted in her body and bent over and everything. 
They saw and heard the bones snap and the presence of God come in and this woman was totally physically transformed before their eyes into a beautiful woman that was whole. From a woman that was ugly and twisted and distorted, she didn't give up on her faith. And we can ask God to show us the time of our visitation and he will visit us and we will experience it. And we're living in the time which is the end of Jubilee. And it's not just any Jubilee, it is the 50th Jubilee of Israel. From the time of the crossing of the Jordan River and we're at the last end when there may be major events happening in this month of September in Israel. And I believe also in the body of Christ that there will be momentous events that will begin to take place. And are you in that place where you are not giving up, where you're taking courage and you will have a courage and a faith and a desperation to cooperate with the Lord in putting yourself into the place of the presence of the Lord's deliverance? When you are this way, and when the body of Christ becomes this way, they will lose their paralysis and come forth to be his bride. But they must be brought to the place where they are like the ten wise virgins and not the foolish virgins, where they have a lavish love that does not want to limit God, but go all the way to allow the fullness of the headship of Jesus Christ to fill their local assembly. That means that his house becomes a house of prayer. That means that we get on our face before God until there's brokenness and contrition and reverence and great humility. And all the superficiality and lightness disappears. And we come forth out of that humility into a purity of worship, a purity of devotion and of liberty and of joy and a praise. Oh, it's out of great mourning and humility that comes great joy that is very pure and that is very much filled with God and not our own hype that happens in many cases in various movements in one measure or another. In this passage, I go on to explain a little bit more in Luke chapter 5. I explain about the last, from verses 12 to 26. The, and I just focus on a particular verse here. And so maybe I'll read this. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, Why reason ye in your hearts? This is about the paralyzed man. Whither is it easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon the earth to forgive sins. I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy couch and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them and took up that whereon he lay and departed to his own house, glorifying God. God is commanding us as his people to rise up out of our sleep and to come forth so that we reflect the fullness of his glory that is described in Isaiah 60 where it says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of God has risen upon you. What does it say just before that? It says, Gross darkness shall cover the peoples and the nations. And we are living in a time when the gross darkness is covering the nations more and more as the crisis of a world economic collapse approaches. As the crisis of war approaches, and so many things are becoming at a point of maximum crisis. And so God is calling us as his people to rise to the occasion at this point and be who he's called us to be in this dark hour, to shine as a light. And Jesus Christ describes himself in this passage often as the Son of Man. And so I want to explain briefly what it means by the Son of Man. So I wrote it out here. 
Jesus is the perfect expression of man and God. Remember, God created man. Jesus is God manifest in the flesh, really. When he calls himself the Son of Man, he is calling himself the perfect expression of man without sin. Because anything less could not be called the Son of Man. Because Son means the full expression of man. And sin would make this less than the full expression of man. So what Jesus Christ is saying is that he is what God wanted man to be in total perfection. In other words, in saying that he is the son of man, he is saying that he is the perfection of man and that that is only possible because he is God manifest in man. And he is calling us as his children to come into the same perfection. That is his ultimate purpose, is that we are conformed to the images of his son as it is described in Colossians. And I go on here and I share other things. It is because he, is, he has always had the quality of being in a non-broken oneness with God the Father, Jesus Christ, even while being tempted as we are without sin. To enter into becoming, this is the only way he could enter into being a perfect atoning sacrifice. And it's because of this that he has the power to forgive sins and he had the power to forgive sins even before this event happened in the time and space realm. He had the power to forgive sins before the time of the cross when he died and rose again. And this is because it was a reality in the being of God to enter in to becoming a perfect atoning sacrifice in the Father always beyond the time and space realm. It was always there as a reality in the being of the Father and always in the Son, who is the full expression of the Father in the time and space realm. And so, that is something I will not get into because it's a deep teaching and I don't want to get sidetracked. I want to go to the theme passage, which seems like it may not be the main theme passage, but we'll see. But this is the passage I wanted to share from today was Luke 13. And so I do want to share from Luke 13. And so we want to read Luke 13. And so here we'll first read Luke 13. And I want to share in particular to the body of Christ from Luke chapter 13. There were present at that season some that told them of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans? Because they suffered such things, I tell you nay. But except you repent, you will all likewise perish. Are those eighteen upon whom the tower of some fell and slew them? Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you nay. But except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it, and dung it. And if it bear fruit well, and if not, after that, thou shalt cut it down. And he was teaching one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years. And she was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day, and said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work, and them therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite, 
Doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And not not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, will these eighteen years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Then said he, Unto what is the kingdom of God like, and whereunto shall I resemble it? It is like a grain of mustard seed which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew, and it waxed a great tree. And the falls of the air lodged in the branches of it, and again he said, Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and is shut to the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first and there are first which shall be last. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, Get thee out, and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye, and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how oft would I gather thy children together as a hand, gathereth her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. I just want to take a little drink of water here. In the first part of this passage in Luke verses 1 to 5, we, if we do not have the practice of true repentance in our lives, our physical death before God's time, through some fate or tragedy is more likely and that is what the Lord is trying to say in this passage. He's trying to say, if you don't have repentance as a part of your life, and you're not entering into a life where you experience the work of repentance, and you are initiating repentance in your life, you're going to get into a place where your life may be taken well before it was God's intention that it was taken for he has an intention for your life to enter into ultimate destiny. And to enter into any ultimate destiny. If he takes your life before his an appointed time to work his work of grace in your life to bring you forth to be everything he's called you to be. And so this tragedy happened. Now I know there are tragedies that happen and we may question why there's a massive earthquake like there was the one in Haiti, well, for example. And we will say, well, why was there Christians in this earthquake? They probably were buried under the rubble, experienced terrible suffering, and then went to heaven. They've been attached to some because they've experienced terrible hurt and rejection in their lives and abuse when they were children. I command you right now to come forth out of your hurt 
out of your pain. I command you in the name of Jesus to come forth and recognize that God will touch you and heal your inner being. That he will forgive you. And recognize the greatness of his mercy to you. And I command those demons of offense to leave you. Those demons of hurt and of rejection that have caused you to believe lies about your brother and sister. To buy into lies that they're not truly born again or that they don't love you. Or that they are doing all these terrible things to you. And to still love them when they do these things to you if they repent. It does say in the word of God if they repent. But what you're to do is to go to them, to have the courage to go to them and tell them that they've offended you. And then, if they repent, to forgive them. Does that mean if they don't repent, that you don't have a love towards them, to still reach out to them and show them that you love them and that you want them to repent? No. If you're in that place of humility with God, out of the fear of God, you will desire to win your brother and sister because you will see past the outward cell of the distorted image of God, that inward beauty of the image of God that is being formed in them. And so be in that place where you can be fruitful in the knowledge of God because you really know the love of God. That fruitfulness will come forth in your relationships with others because you show mercy, because you show patience until Christ is formed in them, because Christ has been showing patience with you and he has you in a difficult place to bring you into the place of jubilation, the year of jubilee and the year of release. And he is calling at this time many that have been desolate like Hannah to come forth into their destiny. All you need to do is repent and have a life of repentance in your heart. As we go on in this passage in Luke chapter 13, we've shared up to verse 22, and now we come to verses 23 to 30. And in this, Christ is saying how important it is to strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door. So brothers and sisters, think of this. If you cannot receive your brother and sister that's born again because of their faults and because they've hurt you, how are you going to receive them in heaven? Do you really think you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven? with unforgiveness in your heart, with a heart that is not willing to forgive upon their repentance, what do you do if they don't repent? Well, you, in a sense, you don't hold odd against them. You don't hold a grudge against them. You still have the heart that wants to forgive them. But you do not release, you do not condone what they have done that is sin. That you don't condone. You require their repentance. You tell them, if they don't repent, I'm going to get a brother and sister, and we're going to bear witness with this. And if you still don't want to repent, I'm going to bring it before the body of Christ. Because you are in a spirit of bitterness that can defile many. Excuse me here. I'm just going to stop something here. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to do our best for one another, to bring ourselves into the place where we strive to enter the straight gate. Because we don't want to find ourselves or any one of us in the body of Christ lose out and fail to enter into the kingdom of God because there's bitterness that defiles many. May we never allow that. May we always be our brother's keeper because we don't want to be found in, our, in the body of Christ that there are relationships that hinder our prayers. If a husband and a wife cannot get along together, it makes it very clear in the word of God that their prayers are hindered. 
may we be in a place where as the body of Christ, we can truly be together in his name because we're not gathered together in his name, which is his being, which is perfect love. If there is not perfect love with one another in our midst, if we're not in genuine love and there's aught in the body of Christ and division, where there isn't love in our hearts to reach out to our brothers and sisters, to see them come into the kingdom of God and be saved from those things that are defiling them and others through them. <clears throat> How can we experience the glory of God in our midst and that power come into our midst that brings the greater works? <clears throat> God deliver us from the loves of the world. Teach us what it means to die from the world. For the word of God makes it clear that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And it's the loves of the world that harden our heart so that we don't love one another, so that we do not love God that causes divorce in marriages, that causes divisions in the body of Christ. And God is calling us to be those that come forth, that have such a love in our heart for him, that there is not any of the loves of the world that can cause this hardness, so that we do not love one another, so that we become merely religious and merely denominational and limit the glory of God for this last hour that he wants to fulfill corporately in the body of Christ around the world that also includes a fulfillment in our lives as individuals entering the fullness of his destiny. He is calling you to rise up and to do warfare to win your brother and sister out of the shells and prison houses that they are in that they can enter their destiny. And I pray you would do the same for me and all of us. We all need each other. And I can't go on. I could talk for a long time here. I just want to finish this passage with the last section, which is verses 31 to 35, which is talking about the fact that at that time, the nation of Israel as a nation did not know the hour of their visitation. Now, a life that is repentant and fruitful and pleasing to God has made itself always ready to receive God's special time of visitation. We need to begin to expect the times of God's special visitation in our lives as individuals. I am asking for it in my life. I am praying for it in my life. I need it because I can't do anything to get out of my circumstances. And I'm not trying to. I'm just putting first the kingdom of God and doing what I'm doing now. Because I know God has an appointed time to bring forth his end time purpose, which is the very consummate purpose of history itself, which is his corporate bride. And I'm praying that we in the nation of Canada where I live, and the United States and in the nations of the world will rise to the occasion, the secret to saving our nations so that there is a large nation of light within the nation of darkness and a large city of light within the city of darkness and a large community of light within the community of darkness. The secret is in the fear of God, which births genuine honesty and humility, that births genuine repentance and faith in God. We will know the visitation of the Almighty when we come into this kind of a unity in the body of Christ, around Christ the head. And I'm praying that the book that I have almost done in outline form that gives all the details will not become denominational, but will indeed be everything that God would have in that book as a template to begin to start such congregations around the world. It has to happen on a global scale, and it has to be God's work. It's not going to be because of my book that God, God doesn't need this book I've made to do this. What he needs is the body of Christ to be called forth and us to blow the trumpet of awakening that we will know the hour of our visitation, for he is coming for his bride. 
and he's also coming in your personal life. Many times he's wanting to visit you. Are you going to be ready for those special times that you won't know when they are, that are going to be so wonderful when he visits you and reveals himself to you? Thank you for listening to this message. Continue to pray for me and to support me in the work that I am seeking to do in cooperation with the Lord. Amen.